All right, I think we'll get started. Uh, welcome everybody online there and welcome everybody here in the class. We still haven't quite finished the section on temptations. I use this pinwheel, which you've gotten a copy of, which I am using. I, I, I developed that a number of years ago. I'll review one or two points. James assumes justification by faith. He doesn't tell us how to get justified, how to get saved, so to speak. So Paul does that, but he does not. And so what he's doing is he's describing uh, what the justified life looks like. And we looked uh, and spent, we've spent the last couple of weeks on the trials and temptations, testings and temptations. We're going to finish the temptation section here in just a minute. But this is very, very powerful stuff uh, that he's going through here. But he's making it clear to us that God does not tempt anyone. Again, that's the theme of verse 13 through 18, the matter of temptation. God is literally untemptable, and so he appeals to the character of God. Then, in verses 15 and 16, he speaks of, I call it the evolution of sin, not biological, but the evolution, the development of sin. starts with a thought, becomes a desire, leads to an action. And James is masterful in this. It's, it's, I think, one of the most important passages helping us to make sure we are clear on what sin is and why it starts. It's us. He doesn't deal with Satan. He doesn't deal with the world. He's just focusing on us. But then thirdly, and this is, uh, we ran out of time last week, but thirdly, he wants us to make sure that we're clear on the character of God. If God does not tempt, verses 13 and 14, then how should I think about God? So let me read this again, and I want to spend a couple more minutes on it. Starting verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, what James does here is it's actually quite marvelous. He reviews the role of God. God does not tempt. God does not entice the evil. You only associate two words with what God does, good and perfect. And it, the, the Greek word for good is agathos. It's a common word. It's a normal word, but it means that which is righteously good. And perfect, the Greek word there is teleon, that which is complete. That which is mature. And so he's, he's reminding us that God only sends good things and perfect things. And he ties that into his attribute. There's no variation. There's no shadow due to change. God doesn't change. He's always been this way. And that's the attribute we call immutable. God is immutable. He does not change. But I want to reemphasize this. If you... If you're familiar with, and I'm pretty sure you remember this, Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, for the second time, talks about prayer. And he says, as he's talking, starts in verse 11, 7 and goes through verse 11, You who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Here's an example. If your child comes to you and says, Daddy, I'm hungry. Give me a piece of bread. Remember what he says? You would not give that child a stone, would you? He's your child. You don't give your child an inappropriate gift. And then he, he expands. He says, when your child comes to you, he's hungry. Daddy, give me a piece of fish. 
fish and bread were kind of the staple diet in the Mediterranean world at that time. You wouldn't give him a serpent. It's a very strong word. That's a deadly gift. That, that's a harmful gift. You, who know how to good gifts, give good gifts, give that which is appropriate and that which is not dangerous to your children. And then Jesus applies it. It's your Father in heaven who knows how to good gift. He only gives good gifts to those who ask him. And so what Jesus says in that comment on prayer, God gives good gifts. Ask and you'll receive. Seek, you shall find. Knock and it shall be open. God answers prayer. And his answers are always good. Not inappropriate, not dangerous. They're good. And so what Jesus said in Matthew 7, his brother says here in his dis- discourse on temptation in James chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, the father only gives good gifts and perfect gifts. He will never tempt you. He will never entice you to evil. And he ties that in to his immutability. He cannot change. In verse 18, which we've already read, an illustration of this is that God is the regenerator of life. This is salvation. And notice the word, of his own will. The gift of eternal life, the gift of regeneration, which is what's really being talked about here. The gift of eternal regeneration is the exercise of God's will. He chose to do this. And notice again the the language James uses. As he talked about that in terms of how temptation works, verse 15, conceived, gives birth to sin, etc. The Father, out of his own will, brought us forth. And that's, that's language, that's a metaphor for spiritual birth. Jesus calls it in his little talk with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, to be born again. But he says, his own will, he brought us forth. How? What was the means? What was the instrument? By the word of truth. Now, that's unusual. Um, It's not the typical way it's talked about, but James is writing to a Jewish audience that would recognize that phrase because it's an Old Testament phrase. It's in Psalm 119. It's in Deuteronomy. God is the God of truth. His word is the word of truth. That's the theme of Psalm 119. So the word of truth is another phrase that stands for the gospel. The word of truth, it's the gospel. That we should be kind of a kind of first fruits. And again, this is Old Testament language. First fruits, I mean, that's that's something that's in Leviticus. That's part of you would you would do your harvest, say it's grain, or it could be sheep or cattle, whatever. The first fruits of the harvest go to God. So when he says the first fruits of his creatures, what what does he mean by that? The first ones to be born again, the first ones to be brought forth by the gospel. This is something Jesus talked about. I think this is where James is getting this language. But the first fruits of those who believe. You and I, in the church, you and I represent the first fruits of the program of redemption. We come to know Christ. We're part of that first fruits. As this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus will present us to the Father as the first fruits 
of, of, of those who believe. So this is a marvelous, these are marvelous verses, these two verses. It clarifies, God does not tempt. That is clear from the first two verses, verse 13 and 14. Well, then how do we think about God? His character is he only gives good gifts, perfect gifts. And the best illustration of that is the gift of eternal life. He regenerates. He gives us a new life. Yeah. So... Tempted, uh, in 14, when he's first tempted when he's working, where's Satan in all this? Where's what? Where is Satan in all this? Well, that's a good question. But James has chosen to not talk about Satan in this area. Lots of other parts of Scripture, even the words of Jesus, talk a lot about Satan as the father of lies, the one who always tempts, always deceives. James wants us to focus on one thing. We, too, build, and this is like, because he uses the language of the fishing industry, we build and bait our own traps. We're the ones. We actually can open ourselves up to temptation. We can be the source of temptation. So is that consistent with our fallen nature? Sure, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I am so I am so frustrated. I, I mean, I was in education all my life in, in, in college, upper graduate level education. But I've watched with great dismay at the assumption educators are making in this radical reevaluation of education, making an assumption about children that children are basically good. They're not, and their whole approach is just put a kid in the right environment, and he'll stop throwing spitballs. He'll stop taking a gun to class. He'll stop assaulting. Um, I'll tell you, the theology that I know from the Bible is children are not basically good. And you have to discipline children. You have to structure the boundaries because it's our nature. And to make the assumption that children are by nature good, all you have to do, it's, it isn't the fault of the child, it's the fault of the teacher, the fault of the administrator, the fault of the school board. They're not constructing the right environment for these dear kids. And just put them in the right environment, they're going to be fine. Um, I, I shouldn't have gone on that bunny trail because then I get really kind of agitated. But that's one of the reasons why our public educational system is not doing very well. Because it's, 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 it's working from an assumption that's not true. And if we don't correct that, we're going to continue to see test scores getting lower and lower, behavioral problems in schools, teachers resigning in huge numbers, and not having enough staff to do what needs to be done in education. And many parents, many families cannot afford private education. So that assumption, and I, I liked how you put that, if you don't understand human nature, you always make bad judgments about what to do to deal with the challenges of human nature. Question I have, and I, I maybe I'll take that money from just briefly. I'm, I'm reading a book. It's called The Marxification of Education by James Lindsay. I've heard him speak, but he alleges that uh, Paulo Fieri's critical Marxism is stealing our education system. I'm paraphrasing the subtitle of this book. So the question I have is are is this public school system even incentive 
to address the issues that you raise? No. Simple answer. No. They're not equipped. No. But they were never meant to. Well, not recently, Bill, but historically. Well, right. Historically, it was very. I I've done quite a bit on this. I have constructive triangle. From 1787, Northwest Ordinance was passed by the Articles of Confederation before the Constitution was written. They set aside a certain amount for public education, and it would be a triangle: it's the parents. It's the church and it's the educational school. They would work together to educate the child. That triangle doesn't exist anymore. Well, they did teach right and wrong based on Ten Commandments. Well, yeah, schools. and I mean, you know, you've you've read the McGuffey's readers. I mean, you've seen those. That was a synthesis of Christian values and Christian ethics, including the Ten Commandments and educational skills. Those two melded together, and that that was that was a good mix. Because you're teaching ethics and moral behavior to children using scripture and using stories and commandments from the scripture with skills that a child needs to read, to write, to do arithmetic, you know, all the kinds of things very basic in the late colonial period, but even throughout until it's fair, it's really post World War II, although it, the origins of it were, were occurring so in the early 20s. It's a civil society. Yep. It can be a civil society at certain moments. Exactly. That's why right. CVS and Walgreens and these stores are having so much trouble because we don't call it stealing anymore. We call it retail shrinkage. <laughs> I mean, which is silly. Well, yeah. It, call it yeah. Well, you don't want to arrest people now if they don't steal more than $999 worth of stuff. I got in San Francisco. That was out in San Francisco. Yeah, crazy. But. I don't want to get into all this politics stuff, but it, it's illustrating something that James is making clear to us. The problem is you. Satan is an issue, the world is an issue, but the problem is you. And the very first step in growth, in the growth of, of, of the justified life, is to recognize your nature. And that Christ gives you the capacity to deal with that nature. It's called regeneration. It's called being born again. It's called salvation. And that's where you rebuild your life. We call it taking responsibility. Well, that, then that becomes a part of it. You take responsibility for your actions and your decisions, which is central to Scripture. That's what everything's all about. And that's the, we've lost so much of that. Um, and, and so I'm going to stop there. But it was my fault because I commented <laughs> on what you commented. It usually is somebody else's fault. But this morning, it was my fault. Now... The second part of the book starts with verse 19. And on the pinwheel, I just called this response to the word. And it's really interesting because this shows you how James is doing these nice transitions. The word of truth was mentioned in verse 18. Now, in verse 19 and following, he talks about how we respond to the word of truth. But he starts with a very interesting Threefold injunction. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person notice this threefold injunction. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James is focusing on a quality of life. And he's going to relate that quality of life 
to how we respond to God's word. And this is what James does, because this is the this is the power of James. James is saying, here's what the justified life looks like. Now, before I give you an injunction, before I give you instruction, before I give you an exhortation about the word of God, I want to talk about the result first. So he lays out a result, an intended result, and then looks at how we get to that intended result. What's the intended result? A person, now I'm going to use the language that Paul used, but if, if I'm putting the two together, complementing the two. A justified person is learning something. To be quick to hear, to be slow to speak, and to be slow to anger. What is he doing that? Because James is going back into the Old Testament, he's going into the Proverbs. Because the Proverbs, most of them, not all of them, were written by Solomon, some were written by Asaph. But the Proverbs are observations about life. The Holy Spirit is, of course, superintending the writing of the observation about life. And Solomon will say, a wise person is a person who listens, who doesn't speak quickly, as a person who's very slow in their response emotionally with anger. So James says three things. So let's take these apart. Quick to hear, which is really odd, quick to hear. <laughs> Let's put it another way. You're a good listener. Now, don't raise your hand either online or here in the room, but how many of you would qualify yourself as a good listener? Don't you dare put up your hand. <laughs> No, I'm, and I'm, I'm being a little facetious there, but uh, especially men, but but gals too. Somebody's having a conversation with a time. You know what we're doing? We're immediately thinking how you're going to respond. You're immediately thinking of something you want to say, and you 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 end up you you're not even sure. I don't know if I could even repeat what you just said, but I know what I want to say. And talk over it. Yeah, I mean, so it's James saying, no, no, no. The justified person again before he talks about. His main point, how are you going to respond to the word of God? He's talking about a result, an intended result. He's a good listener. You know, I've been married to Peggy for 54 years, and I'm still learning that. I years A number of years ago, I read something by a guy named Carl Rogers. He's not a Christian, but I really liked it. He talks about developing the skill of reflective listening. This is what he means. You're, you're in conversation with somebody, and you want to do two things. Number one, you want to make sure that that person understands that you really heard what they were saying. And number two, you want to confirm the accuracy of what you heard. So reflective listening. You hear somebody say something. Now, did I just, correct me if I'm wrong, did I just hear you say, and then you summarize what they just said. Number one, you're showing them that you really did listen and really did hear. And number two, that you accurately listen and accurately. But I've, I've used that in the conversations with my wife and with my children particularly. Now, I, I heard you say this, right? And yeah, okay. Is that, really an, is that really a good evaluation, Joanna, of your friend, what you just said to me? See, that's what James is saying. Quick to hear. You're a good listener. That is a skill. 
and uh, probably most of you guys are so mature in the Lord, but most of you have probably already mastered that. But it's just a reminder of something you've already mastered. It takes work to listen. I mean, to really listen to somebody and to hear what they're saying. And then that's why he adds to that slow to speak. Because if you are, if you are in a conversation or in a interpersonal relationship, you not only want to make sure you hear and you're listening, but you're not quick quick lash out and speak. It's that not hasty, ill-considered, impulsive responses. Think before you speak. I remember. Oh, I hope I can remember these Disney characters. My children, my daughter particularly, I think it's Bambi, I think. The, I, do you even know what I'm talking about? One of the Disney movies, Bambi. There's real old ones, the, not the newer ones, but the one, Bambi. Bambi had a friend, I think it was Thumper. I think it was a rabbit. Okay. And Thumper would say, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. So to speak. Think before you speak. You know, children children don't know how to do that. They, they just blurt out something. Most of the times when my kids were young, yeah, I didn't have to really be concerned about what they were thinking. I knew it because that's just the way. And then you get older, and, of course, they, they, they don't do that. But it's, it's a skill in enhancing interpersonal relationships. You're a listener, and don't speak quickly. Think before you speak. And then he adds, because that is often the response, be slow to anger. And, and the word there for anger in the Greek is actually wrath. It's a very strong word. Slow. It's, so he's talking about those outbursts, those explosions that can result. And in, in relationships, if you're not a good listener, and you're not careful what you speak, and you think before you say something, there will be those explosions, those, 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 those tantrums, where it's explosive, incendiary outbursts. And James is just saying, again, the theme I'm developing in our study, the justified life is not characterized. The justified life is a good listener, thinks before he speaks, he speaks, and does not have those outbursts, those, those explosions of rage. It seems to me that you have a paradox. If you don't listen, you're going to lose, right? So the question is, how can you respond if you don't even know what you said? And, and so the value of, of affirming, even if you disagree with what you said, the value of affirming that you understood what they said opens up the you know, the ability for you to disagree. Now, now at least you've been listening. They're more likely to listen. Absolutely. You're showing a degree of respect for that person, regardless of what they've said, that you've listened to what they said. Now you can respond, even in in lovingly presenting it. You can shred them. Without humiliating, you you can you can 
it effectively answer the argument they're presenting that's wrong without embarrassing them. That's a great skill. Not very many of us have that. But and that again, that's the idea. But these, when I read these three things over and over and over again in my mind, I hear and read and understand. But I say, Lord, help me to be like that because I'm not naturally like that. I am not naturally like this. I do not want to develop the skill of being a good listener. But I've learned that's very, very important. And if I, when I was in leadership, it was one of the most valuable things that I, 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 I tried to discipline. If somebody comes into my office, I want to hear what they're saying. And I want to make sure I'm accurately hearing what they're saying. So I would practice that reflective listening skill. Did I hear, just hear you say, no, okay, I think I heard you say. What I heard you say was, is that right? So you're just, you're making, it's crystal clear the clarity with which you're having this discussion. And that person is front. Even if you do not agree with them, and they know you don't agree with them, they know one thing. He listened. And then I love verse. This has got to be one of the most classic understatements in the Bible. Because, that's a gar of reason you could translate it, because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. <laughs> that's an understatement, isn't it? But it, it, I mean, it's just, it's just making it clear to us. Yeah, and again, the anger, the word anger, there's wrath. It's a very intense emotional word. The wrath of man, the rage of man, is a way you can paraphrase that. It doesn't produce righteousness, the righteousness of God. Remember, James is talking about what the justified life looks like. So he's making it very clear. The justified life is going to be a life that controls the tongue, disciplines the ear, and exercises self-control and the emotion of anger. Same thing Paul says in Galatians 5, but with a different spin. You cannot read James without feeling convicted. At least I can't. Therefore, now he gives... Some additional instruction. These are exhortations. These are commands. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now, the, 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 the verb there that's translated put away is used of clothing. It's taking it off. You take off a piece of clothing before you go to bed or when you're getting ready to go swimming or you're going to go play around the golf or whatever it is. You have special put away. It's Take it off. So because it's command and there's the intentional act of your will, you must decide to do this. As you intentionally make the decision to put off your clothing, to go to bed, to go swimming, to go work outside or whatever it is where you have to, you must put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. The things that are not conducive to the commands of verse 19, you've got to get rid of those. So James is just doing the same thing Paul does over and over again in his writings. I'm thinking of Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, your sanctification with fear and trembling, because God has worked within you. You must desire to get rid of And so the words are filthiness and rampant wickedness. Very good translations, actually. But the, it's the idea of stripping off all this junk 
in your life, stripping it off. And then the second, receive with meekness. Humility. What? The implanted word which is able to save your souls. And so in my Bible, what I did is I circled word of truth in verse 18 and circled implanted word in verse 21. How about the same thing? But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that James uses an agricultural figure of speech? He implanted it. He put it in you, which is able to save your souls. And this is, is very consistent with what Paul writes, too. Say there, it's so done Greek, but say is sanctification. This isn't justification. This is that process of sanctification. The implanted word is the key to sanctification. The implanted word is the dynamic center of the process of sanctification. And so James, here you just, James is lining up exactly with what Paul says. Actually, it's better to say because James' book was written earlier than Paul's. James is about 45, Paul's about 49 in AD in terms of Galatians. So James is laying the groundwork that Paul develops <clears throat> because he's a little bit later. So it's, it's a marvelous reminder as James challenges us, what does the justified life look like? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, because that's not the righteousness of God. Pay attention to the word that God's implanted in you, because that's the key to sanctification. So now he's going to develop this. Okay, Paul, you've given us now, excuse me, James. James, you've given us a little insight into the intended result. Now, how do we get there? If the word's implanted, and that's the key to our sanctification, how do we respond to the word of God? That's what he wants to develop. And I'll tell you, guys, this, this is one of those, those passages. I, I do not know how the liberal theologian who rejects a lot of the authority of God's word deals with this. Because it's, it's like I think the word of God is the authority in your life. It matters how you respond to it. It's not just a bunch of myths and stories. It's the word of God. Take it seriously. And so that's James is going to lay down the challenge. Are you with me? Well, you understand what he's doing here? So he's given us the result. Now he's going to tell us how do we get to that result. It's how we respond to the word of God. This is great. And it's very simple. Do what the word says. Don't just hear it. Don't be a heedless hearer. Be a disciplined doer. That's the summary. Now, let's take it apart. I'd like to read verse 22 through 25, and then we'll go back and take it apart. If I receive, and it was humility, the implanted word, which is the key to sanctification, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. I explained it. For if anyone is the hearer of the word and not a doer, he's... He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and 
perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So this is a very, um, a very penetrating illustration of what God intends for us when we read his word. You know, an awful lot of evangelical Christians in 2023 who are part of the sit, soak, and sour crowd. (laughs) They sit, they hear God's word taught, they sour, they soak it all up, and they just sour. What is what is going on here? Well, they hear it, but they don't respond to it. They hear it, but they don't change. And James says it's like someone. Now, you have to remember, in the ancient world, their mirrors were like polished bronze. They weren't the sharp, clear mirrors that most of you have in your house. Where, I mean, you really, so it's really amazing these you use illustration, but it's like, I'll use the illustration I think is really appropriate for all of us. You wake up in the morning, you get out of bed, and you go into the bathroom, and you turn on the light, and you look at yourself. How, how do you look? Your hair is, well, some of you have a little less hair, but you, all of you have hair, which is really good. Mm-hmm. I'm often in classes where nobody has any hair on their head. But anyway, your hair is all a mess. Your breath is horrible. Your beard is all scrubby. And you have that I've been in bed all night smell. And you look at this disheveled, horrific-looking figure in the mirror, and you walk away and don't do anything and start your day. That's almost inconceivable. Do you really – and this, this is really dangerous to talk about this in 2023, but the, the word there, the word there for an individual who looks in a mirror is a man. It's male. It's, a, it's, it's specific, the man. Who look is like a man. It's not. It's not the gender neutral word. It's the man. The Greek word is. It's a man. And I think this is a very sexist, not misogynist, very sexist comment to make in 2020. It's inconceivable that a woman would do this. That a woman would look in the mirror, see what needs to be fixed, or not fix it, and go away. A man does that all the time. Well, maybe I shouldn't. You guys are all hygiene oriented expert in how you comb your hair and shave, etc. But James is saying to be a hearer of the word, not a doer, is like you look at a mirror, you see all that's wrong, you don't change anything. That is inconceivable. And so, did you notice something else he says in verse 22? To be a doer, not a hearer, deceives himself. Why do you think James says that? To be a doer and not a hearer only. Be doers, not a hearer. If a hearer deceives himself, what, what, what does he mean by that? Why does he say it that way? That a person just hears God's word but doesn't do it. A person just hears God's word, deceives himself. Why? Why does he say that? Online, don't be forget, don't be afraid to answer either, mm-hmm. but what does he mean? Why does he say it that way? You hear, but you don't do. You're deceiving yourself. What, what, why does he put it that way? 
goes back to Adam. Adam heard, but he didn't. Didn't. He was deceived and didn't act. Okay. So I mean, I I, I think back to uh, the words of Dietrich Bonner: "Silence in the face of evil is evil because you're tacitly approving. You're not doing anything. So this is a question. I have this verse. Okay, I understand if you hear me. But if you hear me and you do something, when is it evil when you're doing something? So when you're not responding right, when you understand what's going on, and, and you're still contributing to the evil? I don't know. Well, I think that's all part of it. It's, hey, Jim. At the simplest level, it's you hear an exhortation from God. You know what exhortation means. You hear... A, a, a command from the God's word that I need to deal with this in my life. <laughs> the word of God speaking to me, but I hear it, but I don't respond. I don't respond in obedience. You're deceiving yourself. Everything's fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I don't need to hear this. And I certainly don't need to do it. So the deception is, which is, is he again, he does not bring up Satan at all. But the satanic, the satanic methodology is always deceptive. He is a master at deception, which is a form of lying. And that's what he says. If you just hear God's word and you don't respond in obedience, you're deceiving yourself. You're just saying, oh, everything's fine. I don't need to change anything. I don't need to deal with this. James says that, and that's what he uses the example now of someone looks in a mirror sees what's wrong, and walks away and doesn't change. And, and that is an absolutely almost impossible, unimaginable situation. It's just like that. Hey, Jim. Because then you are a sit, soak, and sour Christian. You sit, you soak it up, and sour. You don't change. You don't allow God's word to change. Because remember, he, he goes back. It's the implanted word which is able to sanctify your soul. So I'm translating sozo there. Then he says, here's the instruction, verse 25. But the one, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. Now, it's really, this is really a fascinating verb here. Who looks into the word there, it translated looks, is the term that is used in Peter and John looking into the grave of Jesus. They stoop down and intently look. It's used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, of the angels looking into the salvation of human beings. It's not a cursory look. It's not a glance. It's stooping down and intentionally looking. So that's the word, who looks into the perfect law. Remember, James is writing to Jews. Verse 1, the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So he's using Old Testament, the perfect law. That is the full, complete revelation of God. The perfect law. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. The perfect law. And so we make sure we don't misunderstand. He's not talking about the Pharisaic law. He's not talking about the 613 regulations of the Pharisaic Judaism. 
He's talking about the law of liberty. That's the language Paul uses in Galatians. The law that frees. Remember Galatians? Galatians 5. Stand fast in your liberty. Wall Street Journal loves that verse. They always write about it. But that perfect of the law of liberty, the law frees us from sin, frees us from bondage. Perseverance being no hearer, but forgets, but doer who acts will be blessed in all his doing. So it's 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 a marvelous instruction. Sorry, I should have turned this off. Um, that caused me to lose my thought place in my thought. Instruction. Yeah, that 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 the instructions that 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 the, the the Lord gives us frees us from the bondage to sin, but also brings about the blessing of God. Now, James is saying that a life of obedience to the Word of God is the path of blessing. It's not prosperity theology. It's it's not the you know, every Christian drives a Rolls Royce and lives in a mansion. That's not what he's talking about. This is the spiritual blessing of walking in loving obedience with the Lord. You're responding in obedience to what he's telling you to do. This is what Christians in 2023 need to be reminded of. Sanctifying work of God in your life is the process, but it begins with the Word of God. Not listening to some guru, not not engaging in seminars, nothing wrong with any of that, but it's the word of God is the key to the sanctifying growth that God intends for each one of us. To me, this is the nub of what our nation was founded on, and it is the nub of what the evil communists have removed from our culture. Um, our, our our, our nation was founded on what the British kind of devolved into natural law. And I believe that whether you know, they were Christian or not, our founding fathers, to a man, recognized biblical law. Even Thomas Jefferson, he might not have believed in the divinity of Christ, he believed in the principles in the Bible, the principles that Christ and to all of them, they, they, their definition of sound religion involved the Creator, <laughs> judging us for our behavior here, and then levying that judgment in the next life. That pervaded founding culture, and it was based on biblical law. We. Yeah. We, we lost that in 1964. There is, uh, I've encouraged a number of people. Uh, last year, a very good historian, Ryan McKenzie, published a book entitled We the Fallen People. The Fallen People? Fallen, F-A-L-L-E-N, We the Fallen People. It's, it's a very, very important book. And I believe Christians should read that book. Non-Christians should read that book. Because, Robin, in a sense, what you just said, the argument of his book is that no matter who you're talking about, about whom you're talking in the Founding Fathers, many of them many of them were not Orthodox Christian. Thomas Jefferson, no matter what you take, was not an Orthodox Christian. 
He denied Christ's deity and law, but he still had an assumption about things. And the thing, the thing they all agreed upon was this. Human beings are fallen creatures. And fallen creatures need restraints and boundaries. Fallen creatures need, need a set of laws. Human creatures need rule of law to control their fallen nature. And so they set up a structure to make sure that one individual does not amass a lot of personal power. The only way you can do that is the separation of power, which is the key to how the Constitution is written, but also the checks and balance system, because you're always having checks. And in addition, you, you are creating all kinds of checks and balances in the common ordinary person. Because you don't want anarchy to try. And the danger was, and I know you know this. Can I give you a more history lesson? As James Madison studied the history of liberty in world history, this was his conclusion. There are not any good examples for us to follow. Fifth century Athens turned into the, into the dictatorship of Pericles. The Roman Republic produced the Roman Empire. So how do we build a structure that doesn't fall into those traps? And that was the brilliance of James Madison. And by the way, James Madison went to Princeton University. He didn't go to William and Mary because he was in Virginia. His dad wanted him to go to Princeton, the great center of Presbyterianism. And he studied under that great Presbyterian scholar, John Witherspoon, and he stayed an extra year at Princeton to learn Greek and Hebrew. And so that all of that is because Witherspoon taught him the importance of what scripture is saying is the liberty of the human being must be balanced by a structured power. And that's why God put all these institutions, family, the state, and the church, structured institutions. And he's, this, is, this is what our new nation needs. And Witherspoon was part of the delegation that wrote the Declaration. I'm saying all that because this is what we're missing in how we frame our thinking about the structures of our government. The leaders of this nation, the late colonial period, the early national period, that's why Dr. McKenzie calls the book, We the Fallen People. They understood something. Humans are not by nature good. Humans by nature are evil. And you need to put structures that are going to deal with this propensity to evil. Even whether they're regenerate or not, and it's 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 masterful because this they understood the things that James is talking about here and that Paul talks about. People are not by nature righteous. It's just the opposite. <laughs> What's the author's name again? Uh, Ryan McKenzie. Ryan McKenzie. Yeah, uh, McKenzie. M small C K E N G I E. I think. G I E. Yeah, G I E. It's, it came out last week. Yeah, it's a very, very good book. Now, it's, it's history, so it's, depending on how you like to read it, it gets heavy going a little bit, but it is a fabulous book. I recommended it to a lot of people who you know, we've been talking about things like this. So you brought it up. I thought, I'm going to recommend it. Thank you. All right, seven minutes. My goal is to finish this paragraph, but I don't think we're going to do it. So verse 26 is an application. And James uses a word three times. It's the only time in the Bible it's used. The word is religion. It's not used anywhere else. 
It's Thrascheia in Greek. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. If anyone thinks he's religious, Thrascheia, but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion, second time, is worthless. Verse 27. Religion, third time it's used, is pure, is undefiled before God, the Father. It's this, to visit orphans, widows, and reflection, and keep oneself unstained by the world, from the world. Expositors are curious. Why does James choose to use the term religion? Because as I said, you heard me say this a minute ago, this is the only time this word is used three times. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. And this probably is because, remember, James is written about A.D. 45 or A.D. 46. It's the earliest of the New Testament books. It's only you know, 12 years, 13 years after Jesus went back to the Father. The, the, the converts to Christianity earlier are all Jews. It's a, it's a Jewish flavor. So James apparently has in mind a Pharisaic religious system where religion is something exterior. Religion is that facade. Religion is about ritual and legalistic, not relationship. I don't know how you guys are, but I, I don't like the word religion. I, I don't use it very often because Christianity is not a religious system. Christianity is a relationship with the living God, which then results in the, the things that we talk about in, in ritual and worship and so on. So, but James, James, it's so interesting, guys. He is not talking about what you believe. He's not talking about doctrine. He's not talking about theology. He focuses on three things. If you think you're religious and you do not control your tongue, you're deceiving yourself. It's worthless. That religion is worthless. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were looking and thinking of writing this, I would say, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not do this, I don't think I would talk about speech, words. Do you? I talk about something that is egregiously evident, like morality issues or like ethical issues or like business practices or issues of honesty, integrity. That's not James Hooker. This is the first, and he's going to use this. Two more times in his book, what comes out of our mouth, the words that we speak. What's a bridle? What's a bridle? It's a horse. Okay. It's a tool that's used to control a horse. Put it in its mouth, right? And you can pull on the reins and the horse learns this is what my master wants me to do. So a bridle is a metaphor for control. Uh, the bridle is a metaphor for for discipline. Metaphor is a is a, bridle is a, is a metaphor for you having the responsibility <coughs> for what you say. It's on your shoulders. Bridle is tongue. 
You know, if Brother Fred here, you become a good friend of mine. If Brother Fred and I were in a, in a, in a uh, heated discussion, and I took my fist and slammed it into his arm, I would hurt. I, I think I could hurt him. Maybe I couldn't. He's a pretty resilient guy. But anyway, it would hurt. And it may, I mean, if it's really fun, it made me a little bruised. But, you know, 20 years from now, I hope, Fred would probably forget that. He wouldn't be feeling the pain anymore. Hopefully there would have been some reconciliation. But suppose in a setting like this where there's a bunch of people here in the room and those online, suppose I, in, in, in public here, I shredded Fred with words. I humiliated. I had terrible things I said about him. How long would Fred remember that? rest of his life no matter no matter what no matter what i would say no matter no matter what would happen, he would always remember that the humiliating horrible things that jim said about me my father he's been with the lord for a number of years now but my father was a very very strict disciplined man he was german Hermann, very strong german uh, he wasn't really tolerant with much. Uh, and my dad often didn't think before he spoke. I still can remember some of the things my dad said to me. You know, what he, the things that he shouldn't have said that. In terms of just, you know, the, 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 to humiliate and shame. My father's approach was the way to change behavior is shame and guilt, not love. And we're masters at that. The way to, is shame and guilt. Well, James is saying, if you don't bridle your tongue, don't call yourself a Christian. You see, the religion is that outward, it's a term of that outward expression, that outward manifestation, that external. The Pharisees were masters of that. That's why the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount is, I'm not interested, Jesus speaking, I'm not interested in external righteousness. I'm interested in internal righteousness. I'm interested in what's in your heart. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, but if you say in your heart and call your brother a name, you have anger, you, you call him derogatory, you're guilty. Oh, that's a much different standard. You've heard it said you're still not committed only, but I say it to you. If you look with lust upon a woman, look on a woman with lust, you're guilty. Much different standard. God is interested in what's going on in her heart. That's what James is getting at. I wanted to finish this par paragraph. I was delusional. I didn't even get finished with verse 26. But all right. This is convicting, man. I hope you're under the table with conviction because that's the goal from James's study. Are you with me on this? All right. I'm going to pray and I'm going to let you go. All right? Into this delightfully warm, humid day. I'd like to start with 26 again. Yeah, thank you. Our Father, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus. He is the regenerator of life through the Holy Spirit. He gives us that eternal life through his death, burial, and resurrection. We appropriate by faith. And the Holy Spirit takes up residence, and the process of sanctification begins. James is talking about the end goal, talking about what that justified life looks like. Lord, this is convicting. Every time I study it, every time I teach it, I'm, I'm made aware again of the things that are hard, 
about being a Christian because I'm never satisfied because you're not satisfied. I'm in the process, but my position is secure. My identity is secure. You're transforming me. At times that's uncomfortable. At times that's convicting. Lord, I pray that you'll help me and every man here to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger that we exercise that discipline of self-control. We're interested in what comes out of our mouth. We're interested in how we respond to people. We want to be men of God, men of faith, who represent you well. We, we're seeing this picture that James is painting of what the justified life looks like. I pray for these men. I pray for what you're doing in each one of their lives. I pray for your, your, your enablement for them as husbands, if their wives are still alive, to be dads and granddads. That are faithful because Lord, sometimes it's what people see in us, not only what they hear from us, that is just as important. We want to represent you well. Help us to do that to the glory of your Son and for the good of each one of us as representatives in Christ's name. Have a great rest of the week.